Our Heavenly Father, thank You as we come to You from the hearts that You unite to fear Your name for the privileges of worshiping You, for the stretching of our minds and imaginations by the poetry that we sing, by the words of psalms that enable us to lament the need and sorrow of our world confess our fearfulness in the midst of it, and be able to trust in You as our strong tower and our rock. And thank You as we come to Your Word tonight that we come to it at the end of a day of Your grace to us in fellowship and in family. Thank You for the grace of Your presence with us, and we pray as through the accumulation of Your Spirit's work in us, that our ears may be the more sensitive to Your voice, our hearts more in tune with Your Word, our wills more sweetly bowed to everything that You will say to us. And so draw us to Yourself, our Father, that unknown to us we may be prepared for the days that lie ahead, and that Your Word will strengthen us that it will search our hearts, but most of all, that it will expose to us not only our need, but the magnificent supply of grace that is to be found in our Savior Jesus Christ. So, lead us from Your written Word to the incarnate Word, we pray, by Your Holy Spirit. And this we ask in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Please be seated. Now we've come this evening in our studies in Paul's letter to the Romans, to the seventh chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 7. The passage, if you're going to be using the Pew Bible, is on page 943 for children who may have brought their children's Bible with them. Tonight it's page 1407, Romans chapter 7. And this evening, we're going to read the first six verses. The first paragraph, which in the English Standard Version is entitled, you will see, Released from the Law. Paul has been speaking here to the Romans about the privileges that are ours in union with Christ. He had emphasized in chapter 6, verse 14, that sin no longer has dominion over those who belong to Jesus Christ. And part of the reason for that is that in Christ they are not under law but under grace. That had immediately raised a question in verse 15, which he has answered in verses 16 to 23. And now he continues with his thought about what it means to be free from the law. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, 
you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. I imagine for very many of you, perhaps all of you, if you ever enter the United Kingdom, you have to show your passport to the passport control that is for other people. However, although I am not an American citizen, as you know, when I enter the United States of America, I enter the line for citizens of the United States. I sometimes get slightly suspicious looks when I pull out of my pocket my red rather than my blue passport. And because I am a resident alien, number 37 million and something, and I'm one of the legal ones, because I'm a resident alien, I come into the United States, and the immigration official may say to me, I see, sir, that you are traveling, and this is the language that's used, isn't it? You are traveling under a British passport. I live in the United States, but I live under a British passport. And in some ways, very poor ways really, but real ways, this is what the Apostle Paul has been saying to us is the situation for Christian believers. By nature, we belong to the kingdom of Adam, and therefore we are under the power of death, and under the threatening condemnation of the law, and we are in bondage to sin. But now, he says, we have been translated out of that old kingdom into the new kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer the old man that we once were in Adam. We are now the new man that we now are in Jesus Christ. And yet, we still live in a world that is under the dominion of death, and under the dominion of sin, and under the condemnation of the law. But the Christian, says the Apostle Paul, is set free from these three dominant powers, because he is no longer passing through this world under the old Adamic passport but he is living the Christian life. She is living the Christian life under, as it were, the passport of citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this is the point that Paul was making, isn't it, in chapter 6 and verse 14, the reason that sin will not be king over you, will not lord it over you, is because you are not living in this world under the passport of the old Adamic order. You are living in this world under grace. 
And we noticed last time, and Paul himself immediately noticed it last time, that that is an explosive statement. We are not under law, but under grace. It shouldn't surprise us that the Apostle Paul was attacked as well as misunderstood for saying this kind of thing. Do you remember when he is arrested and attacked in the city of Jerusalem in the Acts of the Apostles in Acts chapter 21? The accusation that is brought against him by people who knew of him and hated him as a consequence is this. The crowd were crying out, this man is teaching everyone everywhere against the law. You see, this was the accusation the Jews were making against him. The Apostle Paul preaches this gospel in which he says, you are not under law. He is attacking the law. And there are little indications, as we've already seen in Romans, that that criticism had pursued him through the Christian churches. And one of the things he's doing in Romans is expounding fully his teaching, because you remember how he'd said in chapter 3, verse 31, does this gospel that we preach, does it overthrow the law? That's what people were saying. It overthrows the law. On the contrary, says the Apostle Paul, it is only this teaching of salvation by grace that can ever uphold the law. And there are other little indications throughout the letter to the Romans that this was one of the things that niggled away in the churches about the Apostle Paul, that he preached Christians are not under the law, and therefore he was against the law. And so, as he comes to chapter 7 in the midst of the many things that he is doing, one of the things he is doing is helping us to answer the question, if we are no longer under the law, how then does the law function in the life of the Christian believer? And you'll notice that he spends a good deal of time in this chapter thinking it through and talking it through. For example, in chapter 7 and verse 1, do you not know these things, brothers? And then he raises another question in chapter 7, verse 7, similar to the ones we've seen in 6, 1 and 2, 6, 15 and 16, and now in 7, 7. What are we going to say about this? Are we saying the law is sin? God forbid, he says. So, all of the time, Paul is, as it were, taking these accusations, and he is bringing them to the truth of the gospel, and he's helping us as he reflects on the law to understand what the law is and does in the life of the Christian. And this is tremendously important. John Newton, who in my estimation was perhaps the wisest pastor in 18th century England says in one of his letters that at the bottom of almost all religious errors, practical religious spiritual errors, 
is a misunderstanding of the role of the law of God in the life of the Christian. And so, in a sense, from chapter 6, verse 14, when he's raised this principle, you're not under law, but you're under grace, right through to the end of chapter 7, the apostle is going to help us to understand what the present situation of the Christian believer is. And he puts it to us very simply in a principle in the verses that we're looking at tonight that runs through the whole of this chapter. The Christian has died to the law. The Christian has died to the law. This is the point of these opening verses. But while the Christian has died to the law, just as he has or she has died to the dominion of sin. Sin has not died out in the Christian, and therefore the Christian who is delivered from the dominion of sin spends his or her life from a position of Christ's glorious victory battling against sin. And so, in the same way, it seems to me one of the things the Apostle Paul is saying in this chapter is that the Christian believer who in Christ has died to the law so that we are no longer under its condemnation lives the whole of his or her Christian life discovering that the law continues to expose the presence of sin in our lives. Until that day dawns, about which Paul speaks, you'll notice, right at the very end of the chapter when he cries out in two exquisite statements, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? That's a man whose need and failure and sin has been dramatically exposed by the law of God and yet he has been driven not to despair. He has been driven by the sense of his own sinfulness and wretchedness to behold Jesus Christ. And so, he says, thank God Jesus Christ is finally going to deliver me. He's delivered me from the condemnation of the law against my sin and one day He's going to deliver me from the very presence of sin. And in Jesus Christ and with Jesus Christ, I will no longer experience that exposure of my sinfulness which I presently experience in this world. Now, that's the big picture. In a sense, we can take this as the bookends of Romans chapter 7. I have died to the law, but I am far from perfect according to the law's commands and demands. It exposes my sinfulness, but as my sin is exposed, I am not left to despair. I'm not left to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I find my all-sufficiency in Jesus Christ. That's the way to live the Christian life. The way to live the Christian life is to discover increasingly that you are this wretched man or woman, because you see it's this wretched man or woman alone who discovers how glorious Jesus Christ is, 
Those who love much, says Jesus, are those who are forgiven much. And so the law of God exposes our sinfulness in the recesses of our lives. It breaks through all the facade and comes to the very heart of our being, as Paul will say later on in this passage, not as it were now to destroy us, because we are safe in Jesus Christ. But as we discover this, now this is not the constant experience of the Christian. The Christian believer is not constantly going around saying, oh, I am a wretched man, I am a wretched man, I am a wretched man. There is nothing Uriah heap about being a Christian. But you see, there is a harmony, a spiritual harmony between these two things that it is safe for me to see my sinfulness exposed by God's law because I know where the resources are to be found. And I have ceased to say to the law when it exposes my sin, I've ceased to say to the law, I am not as bad as you say. I say to the law, I am all that you say, and you will discover more. But thank God I am not trusting in anything in myself. I'm trusting only in my great Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of this arises because of this explosive statement that Paul has made that we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. Now, I say that's the big picture, but it sure isn't an easy chapter. Let me, let me allow you into one of the terrible secrets of my life. When I was an undergraduate, I went one evening to the theological society in the university where I was going to study theology. And a man who had preached through the letter to the Romans three times to his congregation, three times to his congregation, had been invited to speak about expository preaching, and he explained that one of the things he had done was to preach through the letter to the Romans. And I remember, I've never forgotten it, in the question-answer session, one of the senior theology students put up his hand and said, oh, that's all very interesting, he said. But you know, a few years ago in our theology faculty, they decided that Romans was far too hard for us, and so we study Philippians instead. Now, that was bad enough. I saw this man who later on invited me into his friendship. I saw his eyes, and uh, he was a man of few words on such occasions, but his eyes said, everything well, well, he said. That was all he said, well, well. And then the brave boy said, he said, it's all in Philippians anyway. <laughs> well, well, well. I wonder what that man is going to say when he appears at the pearly gates. I think he will say this to St. Peter. Now, you are the man who said there were some things in Paul's letters difficult to understand, so I never did study it. And I think Peter will say to him, I'm making this up, of course, I think Peter will say to him, I said there were things difficult to understand. I didn't say that you weren't to study it. That's one of the reasons to study it. 
So, your first assignment here, my friend, is that room there. You'll see the sign, Romans Memorization. That's your first assignment here. And when you've memorized this book, you can come out with the rest of us, and you'll be able to understand what we're talking about and what we're rejoicing in. So, this is by no means spiritually easy, and there are certainly parts of Romans 7 that are by no means easy to understand. And as usual, I will try and make it as simple as possible. And I want to say two things this evening that may help us. First of all, I mean I want to say everything under two headings this evening. First of all, in verses 1 to 3, Paul gives us a basic principle and its illustration. And thus, in verses 4 to 6, he moves on to speak about that illustration and its basic application. So, a basic principle with its illustration and an illustration with its basic application. Now, the principle is clear enough, isn't it? Chapter 7 and verse 1. The principle is that death brings an end to marital obligations. I'm speaking to those who know the law. Don't you know this, brothers? I'm speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. That's his principle. Death delivers you from your present obligations to the law. And he gives us this very commonplace illustration. But it's a very interesting illustration, isn't it? A married man, a married woman, is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Now, here's the amazing thing, says Paul. If a married woman goes and lives with another man while her husband is still alive, that's adultery. But if her husband dies, and of course this is why some husbands have died, alas, if her husband dies, she can go and do exactly the same thing, live with that man. And she is perfectly free to do so, and she isn't an adulteress. Why does that strange thing happen? Because we understand that the death of her husband sets her free from all legal obligations to that husband. She is no longer, in this sense, under the law of marriage to this particular husband. Now, it's the next verse that things get a bit tricky in. You'll notice what Paul says. Likewise. Now, what does that mean? He has given us the principle, and the principle is that death brings the obligations we experience under the law to an end. And now he's given us the illustration. Here is a woman, she's married to her husband, and her husband dies, and so she is free from the law. Now, he says, likewise, in the same way, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another 
to Him, that is Christ, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So, you see, He's now moved from the principle to its illustration in marriage, and now He's beginning to move from the illustration in marriage to its application in the Christian life. In the same way, we were living in the flesh, but now the death has taken place. We are married to another. We are released from the law, verse 6, and we serve now, he says, no longer under the old written code, no longer under the law, but in the new life of the Spirit. Now, whatever Paul is speaking about here, it's obviously wonderful. It's about a glorious liberation that Paul himself has experienced by God's grace. But you can't help reading these words without thinking, now, wait a minute here. Something has happened. Did you see that as we read it? Something happens. When he had been using the illustration, he said, the woman is free when the husband dies. But now you see what he says here, likewise, my brothers, you have also died. You see that? In the first instance, it's somebody else who dies that sets me free. But as Paul works this illustration home into application, it's not apparently someone else who dies. Likewise, he says, you also have died through the body of Christ. Now, I say this is not easy to understand, and uh, as you read the commentators, you realize that they don't find it easy to understand either. Learned men have puzzled over this. Some of those who are, to be quite honest, unbelieving commentators have made a great deal of fun of Paul at this point. Poor man, he was always hopeless at using illustrations, and he messed it up. Some of us are like that with jokes. We try to tell jokes, and then we mess up the punchline, and they say this is the kind of thing the Apostle Paul has done here. In the illustration, he has the husband dying and the woman being free, and then he turns it all upside down and it's we who died, and it's all confused. Now, what's the problem with saying that? Well, the first problem is that it doesn't take the Word of God very seriously. And the other problem is this. Those commentators say, you know, Paul wasn't very good at illustrations. That's a barefaced lie. Paul was actually magnificent at illustrations. It's quite an exercise to count up the number of illustrations, some of them very subtle, that the Apostle Paul uses, and some of them are absolutely brilliant, stunningly illuminating. So, even from the human point of view, never mind from the point of view of God's superintendence of the letter to the Romans that Paul is writing, one would never think that the Apostle Paul didn't really understand what he was doing. And so, most commentators say this, and when I say most, now I haven't read all the commentaries. I told you, I think at the beginning of this series that I have, I think more than a hundred commentaries on Romans. I haven't gone through all of them this week, but the vast majority of outstanding commentators 
the vast majority of outstanding commentators say this. The only point that Paul is making here from the illustration is that death ends the obligations that we have to the law, and it can no longer condemn us. Now, I would like to think that's true. There are two reasons I'd like to think it's true. One is because the vast majority of the, va- of the best commentators in Romans say that's true, and that's a jolly good reason for wanting it to be true. And the other reason I'd like it to be true is because then I could just move on this evening and get to the point that Paul is making. But there's, I don't know what you feel about this. Uh, I just feel a wee bit uneasy about that for this reason, that Paul could have said that without using this illustration of the husband and the wife. And I don't think he's wasting space by using this illustration of the husband and the wife. And so, I say I'm just a little bit easy, uneasy about it. I certainly wouldn't be dogmatic about it, not in the face of uh, some men I actually know who are outstanding exegetes, and the vast majority of them, I say, say. It's, he's just picking up the principle, don't worry about the fact that there's a great change here. But if that's the case, the change is a little bit confusing if you're reading Romans carefully. And so, I am inclined to agree with that small minority of commentators, and it is a very small minority of commentators who think that something else may actually be going on here. And it's this. Think about what has been say, Paul has been saying from, from really from chapter 5, verse 12 through to this point. Just let me rehearse it again, but let me put it in terms of marriage by nature, you are married to Adam. That's what he's been saying in chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. But then by grace, he has said, you remember, in chapter 6 and verse 6, we know that that old man was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We were married to Adam. We were united to Adam. To use the language Paul uses here in these verses, we belonged to Adam. And in Adam, we were under the dominion of death and under the dominion of sin and under the wrath of God and under the curse of the law. But now, through our union with Jesus Christ in His dying, that marriage has been severed. We were one with Adam, but in Christ, that great death took place of that old man to whom we were married. And now, says Paul, in union with Christ in His resurrection, we have been set free to marry another, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, I think, is why Paul says in verse 4, likewise, my brothers, in Christ you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, be married to another, 
to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. In other words, he's saying, back to those first principles I worked out with you a chapter or so ago, and see how union with Christ, which brings to an end that marriage you had with Adam, sets you free from all the powers that had dominion in that old marriage, in that old kingdom, and how now in Jesus Christ, to whom you are united, married to Jesus Christ, there is this glorious possibility of living for Jesus Christ, set free from all that held you bondage in the past. It is a most glorious and wonderful, wonderful, wonderful truth. Oh, he says, don't you remember those old days, that old marriage, when the law as it constantly condemned you, as you tried to keep it, as you tried to please it, how it just aroused within you the hostility of the flesh. Think of a marriage. Think of some of those marriages of, whom you some, of which you sometimes hear when, when the very first week of the marriage, the woman discovers she has married a demon and from the very earliest days, instead of entering into the joy and liberty and new unity of married life, she finds herself being dominated and domineered and crushed and criticized, and as she does everything she can to try to find some way of pleasing this domineering brute she has married. And even in those moments when she cries out to him to say, do you do you not have any mercy or pity for me? And she realizes she's married a man who constitutionally has no pity for anything, and her life is crushed. And she cries out, she cries out in the words of the Apostle Paul, is there nobody who can deliver me from this union, this marriage? I wonder if you know that marvelous passage in Pilgrim's Progress where Pilgrim meets Faithful. And poor old Faithful has had a time of it. And he's describing how he's been struggling through the Christian life. And then as he finds himself, as it were, beginning to make progress, he's going up the hill. And when he was about halfway up, he saw someone coming after me, swift as the wind, and he overtook me just about the place where the settle stands. Just there, said Christian, did I sit down to rest me, but being overcome with sleep, I there lost this roll out of my bosom. But good brother, says faithful, hear me out. So soon as the man overtook me, he was but a word and a blow, for down he knocked me, laid me for dead. But when I was a little come to myself again, I asked him, wherefore he served me so? He said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the breast and beat me down backwards. So I laid his foot as dead as before. And when I came to myself again, I cried, a mercy, he said, I said. But he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. He had doubtless made an end of me, but that one came by and bid him forbear. Christian, who was that that bid him forbear? 
Faithful, I didn't know him at first, but as he went by, I perceived the holes in his hand and his side, and then I concluded he was our Lord, so I went up the hill. And Christian, that man that overtook you was Moses. He spareth none, neither knoweth he how to show mercy to those that transgress the law. He's not speaking about the whole of Moses, the sacrifices for forgiveness, but the law. The law doesn't have mercy in it because it's commanding you not to sin. And the harder you try, the more it beats you down. It's, it's like that ghastly marriage. You belong to Adam, and you're beaten down by Moses. It's an impossible situation. Now, how do you get to that position of which Paul speaks later on, where you serve, as he says in, in, in verse 6, in the in the new life of the Spirit? Well, what's the answer? I've been preaching here for exactly 33 minutes, and I wonder if you've noticed something. I haven't told you a single thing to do, not a single thing to do. And I know you want something to do. What are you to do? Is there nothing for you to do tonight that would transform your life? Let me put it this way. Picture this woman, Mary. Her husband has oppressed her all their married life. He's beaten her. He showed no mercy. It wasn't in him. She was broken by him. But he died suddenly and now she's free. When a gentle, gracious man has seen her, watched her, been drawn to her, wooed her, but she has the nightmares. Her whole being has been crushed, but he persists in lovingly wooing her. She can hardly believe that this could possibly be true. It would be the best news in the world if there really could be such a man. But she has had such nightmares with the other man. She can hardly believe that there could be a man who would love her for herself. And now he has asked her to marry him, and in fear and trembling she has said yes, and her marriage service is at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia. And Ron Miller plays the fanfare, and the doors open. And in comes Mary, and as she makes her way down that aisle, her lip is trembling behind her veil, her tears are pouring down her face, and she comes down right to the front, and the man who has wooed her and loved her and pursued her and is willing to give himself to her is standing right there, and as she stands before me, the tears are falling down her face. She feels the crushing of these past years. What am I to say to her? I am to say to her, Mary, oh, Mary, Look at your husband. Look at your husband. The past is gone. 
the obligations are finished. Behold your new husband, and fix your gaze upon him, and enjoy your new freedom. There will be nightmares to come. There will be times when you will feel crushed. There are times in this new marriage when you will fail, and your failure will be revealed, and it will seem all the more sensitive to you now because you're married to this loving man. But Mary, now you belong to Him. And the law that bound you to that man is gone forever. That's actually what it means to be a Christian. Once I was bound, now I belong. And he's saying, oh, he's saying, Christians in Rome, in a sense you've in a sense, you've got to see this to, for, the, for the privilege of what it means to become a Christian to dawn upon you, that in Jesus Christ you have this glorious freedom. You're no longer under that horrible condemnation that you tried to propitiate and satisfy by struggling with your very best deeds, and now you realize all there is to do is to embrace your new husband, and he will guide you. He will lead you up the aisle, a new woman, and out into the world. He will be your guardian and your guide, and when you fall, you may turn to him, not in the fear of being beaten down and pounded into the dust, but of knowing again the joy of fresh reconciliation and welcome and grace, and strength. Maybe you're a Christian, and that's exactly where you are. And God's law has been beating you down, and beating you down, and beating you down. What's the problem? You're looking, you're looking at the wrong husband, aren't you? You're looking at the old husband, the old world that Jesus Christ has delivered you from. Here's the thing to do. Fix your eyes on Jesus, your new husband. And we need constantly to be reminded of this. But perhaps there's somebody here who's never come to Jesus as a new husband. I want to ask you a question I often ask, never here, always down there. Will you have this man to be your husband? Will you live with him to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, never again to be parted? Will you? And all within your heart. It's, it, dear ones, it's too good not to be true. That's the grace of God in the gospel. Come now and say, I will have this man 
to be mine. Or maybe if you said that ten years ago, or five years ago, or twenty years ago, and, and like these dear ones in Pilgrim's Progress, you've fallen down the hill, and you've sought to be faithful, but you've been beaten around. It's time tonight to renew your marriage vows to Jesus, isn't it? And say, Lord, I think I did this once before, but I want to do it again tonight. Heavenly Father, we bow in joy as Your Word searches our hearts, as Your law exposes our sin, as many of us who have sought earnestly to be the best people we can possibly be, and we've so often felt ourselves to be beaten down and bruised and crushed by our sin, and we've cried out to the law to give us a break and to show us some mercy, and we know that we've been looking to the wrong husband and we want to advise only for the Lord Jesus Christ tonight and to find in Him our deepest salvation, our lifelong security, and our spiritual joy. And so, our Father, as You lead us, as it were, down the aisle to Your Son, Jesus, we want to hear You say, that You give our lives to this man for our blessing. And we pray this for that blessing and for Your glory. Amen.